Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one mccrispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. It seems like it's not always coming up with the new, new, absurdist idea, but kind of combining old concepts together in a new way. Yeah, that was a big breakthrough for me because when you start, you just want to be original all the time and if something's been done you don't want to do it i think if you're creative that's your instinct but there aren't a zillion original stories so what you have to do is take an old story and make it original put your own spin on it it's a perspective on life i think you're just always looking for the twist and why do you think you have a twisted perspective on life It's exactly the way I've seen the world, which is it's so much more fun to be looking for that thing that makes you laugh. Okay, well, I am really honored to have a living piece of television history in the room. I hope you don't mind me saying that. No, that's okay. Nell Scovel. Could you call me iconic? Uh, You're iconic. You are iconic. (laughs) You're an icon. I've always wanted to be called iconic. Well, now you're officially iconic. Uh, Nell Scoville, you just wrote, came out with a book, Just the Funny Parts. But I'm glad you came out with this book because it gives 
me an excuse to have you on. I probably wouldn't have known your name, honestly, without the book, but I know everything you've worked on. Uh, you know, you've worked on everything from classics like The Gary Shandling Show, then Murphy Brown, Monk. I'm reading this off the cover here. Uh, the Muppets, uh, Charmed. Uh, after Newhart, you worked on Late Night with David Letterman, uh -huh. and that became part of a controversial article you wrote much later. Uh, you were a sh creator and showrunner of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Which I know you watched religiously. Uh, well, I have daughters 19 and oh. 16, so yes, I did. Oh, wow. I, don't, I wouldn't say religiously, but they did. <laughs> yes. And I watched it with them. And, uh, uh, and I thought that was just a great idea to come up with a show about that because Sabrina was a favorite cartoon character of my uh, from when I was a kid. That I did read religiously when I was a young boy. You know, it was like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, kind of part of the whole genre of, you know, Archie and Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. And my oldest daughter, Josie, is named after Josie oh. and Josie and the Pussycats. So I'm, I love that whole kind of uh, sugar pop comic books, yep. which you then, you know, turned into a television show, which is just a genius idea. Uh, what was absurdist, and we got to run all the uh, tired TGIF plots through this new magical blender. So, yes, we did an episode like Sabrina Needs a Prom Date, but our solution was her aunts um, make her a date out of Mando <laughs> on the kitchen table who comes, who they magically bring to life. So that that was the fun part of that show. Well, isn't that that that's interesting in and of itself that you took this these kind of old tropes. Like I could picture Beverly Hills 90210 and Shannon Doherty needs a prom date. Boom. That's like a classic storyline. By the way, the date was played by Brian Austin Green, uh, who so came funny. from 90210. So you're exactly right. Was that inside humor <laughs> to cast him in that part? Oh well, a little bit. I uh, think so. But we also, you know, had these amazing guys like Dana Gould and Chris Elliott and, you know, all the all of my friends, Joel Hodgson, you know, these kind of um, edgy comics from that time come on our show. Well, Chris Elliott, did you know him from The Letterman Show? I, I was after his time, but I always wanted to work with him. He's a genius. And his books are really funny, too. I haven't read his books. So... He was in an episode I wrote called Mars Attracts, and he plays a special agent who and Hilda bumps into on Mars because they're vacationing. Uh, the skiing on Mars is excellent. Um, but again, that wasn't, you know, you take the tired episode of the family ski vacation, but you put it on Mars and you throw in Chris Elliott and, you know, talking animals and you have a Sabrina episode. So that's interesting. So I want to kind of talk about the arc of your career in a second, because to some extent you've lived like the dream career. You've worked on like <laughs> every fun show. You're a, it was, you're a comedy writer. So it's, uh, I imagine it's lots of laughter in the process. Uh -huh. You've even written jokes for Barack Obama, which is incredible uh, to hear your words. Uh, I mean, yes. I, I heard this in, a guy say this in another interview, so I, I hate repeating it, but you heard your words coming through the president's mouth, um, which must be amazing. But uh, you've had this dream career, which I want to talk about in a second, but let's just talk about process for a second because you brought it up with Sabrina. It seems like it's not always coming up with the new, new absurdist idea, but kind of combining 
old concepts together in a new way. Yeah, that was a big breakthrough for me because when you start, you just want to be original all the time. And if something's been done, you don't want to do it. I think if you're creative, that's your instinct. I mean, there are plenty of people in television who come at it very differently. They come in and say, oh, you know what we could do? Remember at the end of of Star Wars, when this thing happens, we could do that here. And those are not the people I enjoy working with because I always feel like, like, well, if it's been done, that's a reason not to do it. But at the same time, I've kind of learned that there aren't a zillion original stories. So what you have to do is take an old story and make it original. You know, put your own spin on it. So if you were to write, like, even though the show doesn't exist anymore right now, if you were write an episode of Sabrina right now, what would be kind of your initial thinking process? Given that you know, you know, most, if not all of the episodes that occurred in the, in its, what was it, six-year run, seven-year run? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, nobody's asked me that. And the first thought that popped into my head is, you know, my I argue with my own uh, sons about checking their phones so much. So what if there's a spell that every time she checks her phone, she gets a shock? <laughs> you know, and then so you play on whatever is new today and and do that twist. So, okay. So, so she would have to, so somebody would cast that, spell. Right. Her aunts think she's using the cell phone too much. And what it does is she gets a shock and she can't remember what she was talking about because they're angry with her that she's not paying attention to them. And maybe there's a guy, a cute guy in school who's trying to call her or text with her. They don't call anymore. They just text. They just text. So, So she has to figure out other ways to communicate and that could lead to humorous situations. Right, or just the complication of whatever happens to her when she looks at the phone is getting in the way of something else she wants to do. So now you have that metaphor of by paying so much attention to this technology, you're missing out on the real world. Mm, mm. So, okay, so when I said my thing, you thought of that. What was wrong with my, uh, something was wrong with my idea. I sensed it on your face there. Something was wrong with, the cute guy liking her and she needed to find some workaround to communicate with him. What was wrong with that? Uh, I think because it was a cute boy and the assumption that that would be the the target desire uh, of a young girl. So yours is kind of this broader statement that technology is getting in the way of how our teenagers are developing today. Right. And, and so you're taking kind of this funny little way of presenting it and making a broader message. Yes, ideally. And it's, um, you know, you don't want it to always be about dating or boys, uh, although sometimes it is because I brought up the prom date. But uh, ideally, yeah, it might be, um, you know, Sabrina was an interesting character, if I do say so myself, because her, um, the issue wasn't like, I want to be popular and I'm not. It was, I want to be normal and I'm not. And and I, so it's always about that. So so it reminds me to some extent of, you know, in a slightly different way of older shows like uh, Bewitched or I Dream of Jeannie, 
Where Which oddly, I grew up on and loved. Right, and I grew up on them as well. But oddly, it was the husbands that wanted to be their wives to be normal. Their, their wives were the witches or the genies right. or girlfriends, or whatever. And uh, the, the husbands wanted them to be normal. And here, Sabrina wants to be right. normal. Well, the, the last line of the pilot was she's had this terrible day and she begs the witch's council to get a do-over, which she is granted, and she gets to do the day over and, and not you know, turn the cheerleader into a pineapple. And she rushes home at the end and says, yay, I'm normal, got to go tell the cat. <laughs> and she goes off to tell her cat, the talking cat, Salem. And that, to me, in a nutshell, was that show. That, that's funny. So, so uh, and again... I want to. We're going to get to the book and the the the, <laughs> the arc of your career and all the different ups and downs. But uh, this 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 one concept that we're talking about is really fascinating to me. So, to some extent, even the prom date episode that you brought up, and then the episode we just kind of made yeah. up, whether it's good or bad, is not necessarily about the events. So the events being she's a teenage witch, she gets a spell that she gets shocked with the phones, or in the in the episode that actually happened, her aunt makes a date out of Mando. Um, but the, really the show is about her relationship between her and her aunts. And I and I feel yeah. like I feel like every show, you say what's the show about? Oh, uh Julie Louis Dreyfus becomes the president. But that's not really what these great shows are about. It's about the relationships of the main characters and the people around them. And I feel, I feel that, uh, I, th I feel that's the difference between a good show and a bad show to, to a large extent. Yes. And, and, and there's uh, I know there are theories that every show, even workplace comedies break down into family where, you know, there's the mom and the dad and the, you know, the kids. And uh, I think, Character comedy is my favorite thing to write. And look at one of the ways I approached President Obama was I think he's a sitcom character. He was the most powerful man in the world and he lived with his mother-in-law. Like if that's not a setup <laughs> for comedy, I don't I, know. I didn't know that he lived with his mother-in-law? Yes. In the White House? Yeah, Michelle's mom lived in the White House. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I love the actual classic joke that you that you wrote for the correspondence dinner, which shows this kind of self-awareness and vulnerability on his part where he basically says, you know, at the end he was born in Hawaii and then he gives this big wink right. to the audience. And this timing, of course, has to be perfect or else you would miss the wink. But it kind of plays into the whole, you know, birther movement and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, and, and so vulnerability obviously is a large part of comedy as well. Yes. And maybe we can get later into the process. Of Not always. I mean, sometimes blustery is funny too. Like, you know, I worked on Coach for... Uh, over two seasons with Craig T. Nelson, and that character refused to ever admit he was wrong. So, or you worked on The Simpsons, Homer Simpson. Always stupid. But get, that's one of the reasons I had trouble writing my memoir, or, or one of the most difficult parts is when you write a TV character, consistency is important. But in our real lives, you know, we tend to be all over the place, and sometimes we're very brave and sometimes you know we back away yeah and sometimes we go out of our way to be kind and sometimes you know we don't always have that ability to do that and so it was really hard like i worried that the nell character wasn't likable enough what did you think the the nell character yeah in 
My book. <laughs> oh, oh, you. Yes. <laughs> no, you're totally likable. Oh, excellent. <laughs> no, and I'm fat, and I'm I I'm book I bookmarked all over the place, and that's why I lent the book out to to three friends of mine who are interested in the television business. But you know what I mean by consistency of character? That's the staple of a sitcom, particularly like The Simpsons, which runs for 29 seasons where Homer Simpson has to be the exact same character every <laughs> yes. season like they never grow. <laughs> so or or Seinfeld where the characters are never supposed to learn. Uh so there's many shows where the actual trope is is that they're never going to change. Right. So uh so yeah, I think I, I'm trying to think of shows where the characters do change. Are there any shows that you've written on um where the characters do change over time? Oh, what a good question. I mean, I, I, you see a little bits of growth and, you know, Coach, he does end up getting married and evolves a little, but, you know, it's always two step forward to the one step back to get back to the comedy. Because even like, let's take a comedy like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which you contributed to uh, a story idea that got, that got made. Uh, you know, Larry David, the character, the events in his li life, changes but he himself doesn't really change you know across the nine seasons right I, re I remember once reading that he said the worst part of being rich is that you can't complain anymore <laughs> right yeah. and, and yet he wants to that's his that's his that's consistent his, character yeah so but he manages to to do it in curb your enthusiasm which i think a lot of people would watch curb your enthusiasm and, and not quite get it at first saying oh it's just a bunch of rich you know, Hollywood actors complaining about things, but that's kind of part of the the fun of it. Well, I came up with that idea. It became the Ida Funkhauser Roadside Memorial, where Larry steals flowers from a roadside memorial. And um, it, it truly happened that I was driving to a brunch and was beating myself up because I hadn't brought a hostess gift. And I noticed there was this roadside memorial by my car. I was stopped at a red light. And I actually had a moment of, like, if I just grabbed those flowers, <laughs> you know, could I bring those as the hostess gift? And I remember, like, laughing at what an awful thought that was and then thinking, oh, that would be perfect for Larry David. Do you find a lot of script ideas or things you write about come from um, sort of weird observations or thoughts in real life? Yes. Do, do, okay. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, is it more likely to come from something weird, something annoying, or something that makes you angry? Well, I would say it comes from some real impulse that you know, look, we know the difference between thoughts and actions, right? You can think anything, you just can't do everything. And so the comedy comes from thinking something outrageous that you might do and then going, well, you know, I can't do that because it's not socially acceptable, but it's funny. So like, do you think of things every day of something? Is it like, do you have like a, after, I don't know, let's call it 30 years of writing comedy, are you just constantly thinking of outrageous things uh, that you can't do? Well, I... In the book, I talk about how when someone says, you know, where do you get your ideas from? I compare it to the question, like, how do you grow your hair? Like, it's just something you do, right? And then things come out of your head. Yeah, but you know, sometimes, 
So when I, let's say I have a podcast with someone who is the best in the world at something like, uh, you know, I've interviewed like Gary Kasparov, who's the, was the yeah, world chess the- champion or Tony Hawk, who was like the world skateboarding champion. These people were the best in the world from the age of nine on. And they don't, they can't sometimes articulate why they're the best at something. Cause they were just so much more talented than everyone else from a very young age. And they've been doing it for so long. They can no longer verbally articulate why it is they can do what they do or, or think the way they think. Do you think, but I feel like with writing or comedy, if you're sitting down to write comedy, there must be some kind of, uh, what happened to me today? Or, you know, something that you start with that, that kind of gets the juices flowing. It's, a perspective on life. I think you're just always looking for the twist. And why do you think you have a twisted perspective on life? <laughs> well, I, how, how can we cultivate it? No, I, I think love, it's healthy to be a little twisted. Do you know that play A Thousand Clowns no. by Herb Gardner? Oh, it's a great old movie. And there's a line in it, which is, if things aren't funny, then they're just what they are. And then life becomes a long dental appointment. Huh. <laughs> and... I, it's just exactly the way I've seen the world, which is it's so much more fun to be looking for that thing that makes you laugh. So, so let's start at the beginning. Um, you wanted to, you, 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 you knew you were funny. You loved writing. You wanted to break into TV. You describe this all in the book, by the way. But what, what's the first step? You're trying to break into into Hollywood, where, as you point out in the book, there's less women than men. What's the first step? Well, I was writing for magazines in New York. I had a very Spy and uh, Vanity Fair yeah. and Rolling Stone and Vogue. I had a really nice career as a magazine writer. And then one day, I bump into a friend who was an editor, and she says to me, "Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television." Why did she think it might be an insult? Because I remember thinking that when I read that in the book. Well, it was the eighties, and I don't think. TV was as respected as it is now. And also it was an East Coast, West Coast thing. And you were writing for Spy, which is like a particularly hip New York magazine. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, now there's, you know, Harvard's got a, you know, direct line from the Lampoon to Hollywood. But that it was at the very start of that exodus. So I think it made it sound like you're not, you know, an intellectual, or it would be beneath you to make a lot of money. <laughs> so why did she think you in particular would be good for TV? What insight? Oh, interesting. I think it's because I wrote um, pieces that usually had a visual component to them. Uh, so I I was very aware, too, of... Like, what's an example of that? Well, in in this piece I did for Spy called Too Rich and Too Thin, it had these great graphics where we had photos of women with, with insets of their like super, you know, their their shoulders jutting out or really thin arms, uh, and just it was a way to demonstrate the point I was making. That's, that even that title almost sounds like a Joan Didion type of title, also. <laughs> like I could picture her writing something similar in California. In, in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. So, so, okay, so then what happened? What did you do? So I had um, one friend who was writing for TV. I just, not and not a close friend. 
And I called him and said, what do you do? And he told me, you write a spec script for a show. And the most popular show at the time was The Cosby Show. And it would have been very smart to write a spec script for that. But instead, I picked this cult favorite that I liked, which was called It's Gary Shandling's Show. Iconic show. Second time we'll use iconic here. Was it though? I mean, I feel like those who know it and love it really love it, but it struggled. I think it became more iconic, of course, after the Larry Sanders show, but it did highlight Gary Shandling's unique brand of humor. Yeah, it was so smart. And uh, so I write this spec script and through my articles from Spy, I got an agent who was this very young guy who I think had been made an agent the week before. And he sends my script to the Shanling people um, and they bought it. And then they didn't make it. So, but part of the story of my life is getting just enough positive reinforcement to keep going. Well, okay. So, but I think that that is a choice. So sometimes when people are, when someone's rejected, okay, it's like something happens in the brain. You get this shoot, this this spike of cortisol that you're being pushed out of the tribe. You're not good enough for this tribe. So you can either you have two choices. You can right. either give up, which is a, which reduces the cortisol because like oh okay, I'm not good enough for this. I'll do something else. Or and so that reduces the stress. Or you persist and like you say, you find the positive lifeline in this, which you did. So it seems like you consistently did that, which is find the positive and you had just enough reinforcement, like, oh, you know, right for this, you know, it got accepted, but then got rejected. Um, What did you, you know, what did you do next? Then I um, got hired on Newhart, the final season of uh, the Barry Kemp created Vermont show. He had, he's like running a hotel, running an inn or something. He's running an inn, and he's got George the Handyman, who's played by Tom Poston. Uh, his wife was played by uh, Mary Fran. Um, and these crazy woodsmen, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl walk in. And I noticed you have on your wall the album cover from the button-down mind of Bob Newhart, and he used to do the warm-up of every show and he'd come out and do the telephone routines like Sir Walter Raleigh or, you know, it, they were so great. So he was uh, famous for that in his, he had the best-selling comedy albums in the early 60s with his telephone routines. Like he'd be one half of a telephone conversation. So you're saying, I didn't know that. He did that, would do that as the warm-up yeah. of his show in the 80s? Yes. That's so incredible. So it he was would, great. He would keep up his comedic, you know, a lot of these guys who we know from the Bob Newhart show or Newhart, you know, people like him, yeah. you don't realize that at the core, they love stand-up the best. They do. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I love I love writing jokes. Like after, you know, I just wrote a whole book. I'd, I'd rather just write jokes. And the impact you get, that laughter, it's immediate. And there's nothing like that. And I know I've heard you say in an interview you don't like stand-up because there's there's writing jokes and then there's- No, perfor- no, no. I don't like performing stand-up. Right, you don't like performing No, stand-up. I love stand-up. Yeah, yeah, you don't like performing it. But there is something visceral about writing a joke 
and then using your body to communicate that joke in such a way that all the bodies around you are laughing. Oh, I I totally get it. And if it didn't terrify me, <laughs> I would I would love to try to do it. I tell the story. We've got to get you to try to do it. We're we're sitting right on top of a comedy club. <laughs> now, very early in my very first job. Um, I bond with the guys in the office next to me who happen to be Greg Daniels and Conan O'Brien. And we go to a comedy club together. Uh, we're just babies in our early 20s. And we bump into Jay Leno, who's just hanging out there and he makes small talk with us. And I guess I said something, some smart ass comment to him. And he looked at me and he said, You're funny. You should do stand up. And I was like, Me? And he said, Yeah, don't. You know, and he gestured to the showroom and said, you know, don't you think you could do better than those people? And I said, no, I think the worst of those people are very brave. And he said, nah, you shouldn't do stand-up. But they learn bravery only by getting up on that stage over and over again, you know, to learn. That that you could only learn by getting up on the stage. You're, they're all yeah, but you got to do it time. that first time. And, and I think that would have just destroyed me. Yeah, so so that's the one rejection you wouldn't. You had confidence enough in your writing that you know, okay, I'm going to keep on persisting. But some fears will get to you. Well, there's a self consciousness. You, I, I can hide behind my words. I can hide behind the characters. I can hide behind the performers. You know, it's like Albert Brooks in Broadcast News when he says, you know, I, I say it here, it comes out there. So, so I wanna, I wanna. I want to actually get into the process of writing a joke. And I know you say it kind of just, you know, it's like your hair growing. But, okay, so you start writing, writing on New Heart. You get this opportunity to um, work on, uh, you know, the, the the late night with Dave Letterman. Yeah. And I think that, and that does sound like it fits more what you were just saying. Like you get to write pure jokes. Right. And maybe that was the attraction to it. And... So what happened? Like it, it sounds like in the book, like it was a pretty easy decision, even though it was complicated in other ways. It sounds like in your head, deep down, you knew that's what you wanted to do, go from Newhart to Letterman. So many of the people I admired had spent time as writers at Letterman, from Meryl Marco to Chris Elliott to uh, Steve O'Donnell to George Meyer. You know, it, it was the show to work on in the 80s and 90s. You know, Dave was the funniest guy on TV. Well, well. Right? Did you watch the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every every night. So, And Dave was a great ex-stand-up, you know, long before he was doing that. And and many of the people who have written on the show were, were stand, you know, they were funny guys, writers or stand-ups. But um, so so you had a chance to basically write jokes that would be would be performed correctly, maybe. Yeah. Or, or by a guy as great as Dave. People don't realize Dave Letterman, I mean, they do realize it, but he had his training as a stand-up comic, really. Like, he right. developed, he didn't develop as an interviewer or as a weatherman. He developed his skill set as a stand-up. So, but he needed material every night, which is hard to do, Needs hence a writing Have you staff. ever seen, I'm just thinking, I don't think I've ever seen footage of him doing stand-up in no, the early days. I haven't seen that, but I read about it because he... You know, in that book, uh, I think I'm dying up here, which eventually was, you know, sort of redone as a Showtime special. 
think he's he, I think he's prominent in that book because he broke the strike line to perform at the uh, the comedy store. Oh. So I think he and Jay Leno basically grew up together in this, and Robin Williams grew up together in the stand-up scene. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, I've never have seen. I don't. I don't think there is footage of these things. So, but okay. So, what was it like then, starting day one, writing and pitching jokes for David Letterman? Well, going back, maybe this is the theme. You know, he has a very consistent voice, and you know, I found it very easy to capture that cranky, uh, you know, cranky guy who doesn't want to be there. Um, but there actually wasn't that much writing on the show, which um, frustrated me because, you know, I've come from writing full episodes on New Hard. I'd written a Simpsons episode. So now the idea of just getting in a joke or two every night is not as exciting. But how many, how many, uh, for his monologue, how many monologue jokes a night were pitched to him? Like among were the whole writing to him, room. But he, so he probably got pitched 50 to 100 jokes a night and would, would do three. Mm. So those odds are not very good. His monologue was, was only three? I think so. I think typically he would tell like three jokes. And then the top 10 list? top 10 list, and then he would do one desk piece. So on Fridays, he would do viewer mail, and that was my favorite thing to contribute to. I love the viewer mail segments. Remember those? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what, what, would you, what would you do? Just his, he would, fi- you would find the mail, and then he would... We would get these packets. I think, I can't try to remember, you would maybe get your packets on Wednesday late afternoon, and then Thursday afternoon, you had to turn in all your pitches, and I think you would turn in a dozen pitches and and then Friday you'd, you know, find out. I usually got like one in almost every week. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I, the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. 
I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What about uh, with guests? If you knew a guest was coming, would you prepare jokes for him about the guest, or he would just riff? Was that just riffing mostly? No, that was. Those segments are produced, and they each have producers, and there are pre-interviews, and you know, very little of TV is spontaneous. So, so that's what I'm saying. Did would you ever be asked, "Hey, can you? We have, uh, you know, this guy coming on. Can you come up with some jokes that Dave can potentially have in his back pocket for this guy?" No, we did uh, have a runner with Mr. Peanut stopping by. <laughs> is he considered a celebrity? No, the the one thing I remember about the celebrities is you know going down and watching Elvis Costello rehearse. Or Randy Travis, the country singer who I love, um, you know, was on the show and I was there, and you know that that was that was such a bonus. And you know, there are times I talk in the the book about how working on TV shows are both fun and not fun at the same time. But it is things I look back and getting to watch Bob Newhart do warm up. Or, or getting to watch um, Harry Belafonte sing a song on the Smothers Brothers Hour. And it's just like those, you know, that, that's the compensation beyond the money. So, so when you're on Letterman, though, or when you were writing on Letterman, I imagine you developed more kind of just this boom, boom, boom style of joke writing. Were you able to bring that back into? Sitcom writing? Yeah, yeah, but that's sitcom writing is the character you're you have to find the joke more than force it. Like what's give me an example. Oh, oh. I'm sorry I'm asking these totally naive okay, questions. Okay, no, I'll I'll give you an exam, example. Um you know, I wrote a line for Murphy Brown when I was on it where everyone's disagreeing with Murphy. And she says, um, I stand alone, all great minds do. And it's not a particularly funny line when I say it. In the moment, it killed. 
And it was just so perfectly a Murphy Brown idea that everyone disagrees with her and she turns that around to being, I'm a great mind. <laughs> and and why you decide, I mean, you, you write about this extensively all over the place and talked about it, but ultimately, why did you make the move back into, from Letterman back to sitcom writing? I really felt like I, I wasn't going to thrive at Letterman, um, mostly because I wasn't uh, part of the inner clique. It was a very, um, I, I compare it to the court of, of King Louis, and Dave was the Sun King, and people served at his pleasure. And there were people who were court insiders. There were, you know, a lot of whisper campaigns and backstabbing. And um, I really don't like office politics. Uh, and I didn't want to play the game. And I, I had other opportunities too. So in that way, I, I was privileged. I knew if I left the show, I was going to get another job. And, um, How did you know that so? Well, confidently? I didn't know it, but I, you know, I. One of the things that actually gave me so much peace of mind was I had had this career as a journalist, and I always kept it up, even when I'm, you know, running shows. I'm always like, pitching articles on the side, and I think that was my safety net. And I always thought if TV goes away, I can always go back to magazines, and it really. Um, it it was such a psychological support. Well, at some point, then you just I I feel like you went back into uh, TV writing, but then at some point, fairly early, you decided. You, uh, my guess is you decided you needed to control the process yourself instead of just working for the process. So this way, you could be the the Sun King, and so you created <laughs> and 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 developed Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Maybe, can you tell how that kind of came about? Well, it, it came to me, and and I'm really grateful it did. And uh, it wasn't my concept. Someone else put together this show. But it it really, I think, was a good um, mating of, of that concept with someone who understood what was, what would make it funny, but also what would make it um, real. And and so I worked really hard to find, because I thought the more real I can make Sabrina's life seem, the funnier it is when we mess with it. Why, why, why is that? Tell me the funny in that. Because I think this is an important part of the process. Okay, so um, I'll give you an example. We did a very early episode that involved truth sprinkles. Now, TGIF was famous for, like, you have to learn a lesson, right? We're, we're writing for a mainly kid audience, although it turned out a lot of adults watch Sabrina. So Sabrina wants to know if Harvey likes her. She's new to the school. She can't tell. He's given her mixed signals. And she decides they're in cooking class together. They're making bunt cakes and she'll sprinkle some truth sprinkles on his bunt cake and then ask him if he's interested in her. So the twist becomes, of course, she does the truth sprinkles for Harvey. The home ec teacher 
picks up the sprinkles and puts it on all the bunk cakes, which she then delivers to the teacher's lounge. And now everyone at school is telling each other the truth. And the lesson in the end was um, <laughs> sort of subversive. And basically, the world would be a horrible place if everyone told the truth all the time. By the way, there was a Gilligan's Island episode like this was as well. There? Yes. <laughs> I so, didn't know that. What was it? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but they all had gained the power to, that they had to tell the truth all the time. And so, and it, and it was a disaster. Right. So again, it's this idea that, well, you know, you take the old and, and put it in this totally weird context with a teenage witch and it's still funny. Um, yeah. So that was like a bigger theme. I, you know, I love doing themes like themes about um, honesty or uh, loyalty and, and... And kind of taking it to an absurdist level. Yeah. Because I guess with a with a witch, and then you know you could take it to any level you want, so that brings out the the funny in it yeah. somehow. And you know we had Paul Feig was our science teacher, whose name was Mister Poole, and so his first name was Gene. So Gene Poole was the science teacher. <laughs> he was great. That was I, really fun to work with him. I love him. Have you ever uh, read his his books? Uh, Forgot the yeah, I read the night. first one. Yeah, Super Stud or something like yeah. that, uh, where he's like a kid who just can't meet girls. And, and then, of course, Freaks and Geeks was a great show right. that she wrote. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, it seems like then you just, you you know, I imagine being a showrunner on Sabrina was, we talked about it a little earlier, but uh, it probably was, did that consume your entire life? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a tough job. I quote Mitch Hurwitz from Arrested right, Development right. in the book saying running a show is like piloting a plane while the passengers throw rocks at your head. And you're like, you know, if I go down, we all go down. And it's one of my frustrations with Hollywood is that these shows aren't run as m more mission-based where you know everyone wants to do the best show possible, and we're all going to pull together to do that. And you know, the, unfortunately, most of these shows are more ego based, where you know people are trying to force their ideas or get the credit, or you know, it's you know, I, I've worked on shows, not not Sabrina, but um, well, I'll say more recently, The Muppets on ABC. And I still maintain that show should have worked. Bill Prady had this great idea to do it like The Office, where you're backstage of Miss Piggy has a late night talk show. And one of the things that, that it, it, was, it was a very hard show to produce. But on top of that, I think there were like five different concepts about what the tone and the angle of the show should be. And those, you know, there was one on the stage, there was one from the executive producer, there was one from the network, there was one from the uh, the Muppets. And they all actually were all valid. But what never happened was getting all those people into a room together and saying, let's figure this out so we're all pulling in the right direction. So so Jim Henson, who originally created, obviously, the, the Muppets... Just a genius. I feel like if he had still been... Alive, it seems like seems like every culture, whether it's a show or a business or a family, whatever, comes from the top down. And Jim Henson had this certainly yeah. playful attitude, where 
the culture coming from the top down is going to create this very playful, but he, but honest But he was culture. also, he was really inclusive. Mm. He really loved other people bringing in ideas. It's why all these creative people liked working with him. Yeah, so... So he wasn't dictatorial. Well, when you were running um, Sabrina, how did you change the culture from given what you had seen on, working on other TV shows? Oh, well, we had an overwhelmingly female writer's room, you know, and, and an overwhelmingly female cast. So that was vastly different from the shows I'd worked on. And, and how did that, just culturally, uh, when you, if you were to compare a mostly female writer's room with a mostly male writer's room, what were the main differences other than kind of the obvious ones? No, you're just, the experiences, there's no difference other than you bring a different set of experiences uh, because of that. And so I um, recently rewatched this episode I wrote for Sabrina, the one with, with Chris Elliott, and in it, Sabrina goes on a date with a cute ski instructor on Mars, and they, they're on a picnic, the Mars probe flies by and they look at it and wave. And um, he leans over to kiss her at one point and she pulls back and he says, I sense you're uncomfortable. Do you want to go back to the lodge? And I realized that's, that was me modeling consent for all these mm. young women. You know, back in 96 when not a lot of people were talking about consent. And that comes from my own experience. And I'm not sure a man, a male writer, would have made sure that if she pulled back, the guy should acknowledge it. So, 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 consent obviously now is all wrapped into this Me Too movement, and kind of be, you know becomes this big discussion around Harvey Weinstein and all the Hollywood executives that used power to yeah. basically ignore consent. And what kind of uh, was sort of uncovered in this is that everybody kind of knew what was happening for 20, 25, 50 years. Why do you think now is the time that this sort of broke out? Well, I have a very pessimistic reason uh, that I will I'd give you. Hear it. <laughs> I think women feel we have nothing left to lose in this Trump era. Yeah. And that, I agree with you, by the do way. You? I think Trump caused the Me Too movement in a, in a good way. <laughs> Meaning, no, in a bad way, well, but well, in a good way. Right, right. So the fact that he was elected made people say, look, I'm either going to speak now or that's it. Right, yeah. And so so I, I will say, you know, maybe the ends don't justify the, the means. I don't know, but, uh, or maybe the ends justify the means. I, I don't know, but that's that was the end, was that uh, this Me Too movement came out because of this, because all these women are talking about events that happened 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago with Harvey Weinstein. Why, you know, and then there's the question, why didn't they talk about it earlier? They didn't have somehow permission from society to talk about it earlier. Right. And now it's not like they have permission now. It's that they had to force them. They had to give themselves permission. Yes. And I do feel like women who are privileged enough to be honest, I mean, think about it. We call women who speak out about horrible things that happen to them, we call them brave. What does that tell you about our society? That's because we acknowledge how much power those men have. And so only a woman who is incredibly brave will stand up to that. And now 
in some in some respects, these men right at the top had more power than ever before, and yet women were able to speak out against them. I, I well, I don't quite buy were able to. I mean, we still don't know what the right. result. Look at the Cosby. He's still walking around in his mansion, right. calling those women liars. Yeah. You know, so I don't. I, I, we haven't seen. We're still in the middle of this story, right? And it's not only in Hollywood. I mean, we've seen it in Silicon yes. Valley. We're starting to see it in Wall Street. Oh, and it's in other everywhere. Since Hollywood's the most, you know, the the eyes of all the newspapers on Hollywood. But even before Hollywood in Silicon Valley, it was kind of happening all all in every venture capital firm and and so on. Um, right, the Uber story is what I think. Susan Fowler's story was the starting point for the Me Too movement. Right, so the Uber story, but it was also before that Kleiner Perkins, which is the big VC yeah. firm there. So there was a, a a couple of stories, but that also leads to an interesting thing, which is I didn't know this until I read your book. You were the the writer or co writer on Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg, yeah. which seems like a total departure <laughs> from writing on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Maybe you could describe how you describe it in the book, and it's it's excellent, and Lean In is excellent, but maybe you could. Like, what happened? So, in 2009, David Letterman goes on air and admits that he's been having sex with women he works with. It, this was a surprise to no one who worked on the show. Uh, the big surprise was that he went on air and admitted it. That was such a weird show, by the way, because I watched that show while in real time. Yeah. And the audience is like laughing oh, because they didn't applauding. know if he was telling a joke or not. And he was just being straight out serious. He had to kind of come out with this. But they he didn't even understand. I don't think why they were laughing. Right. And it, it was a weird story. He was being blackmailed because he had had this long-term affair with an assistant who had a live-in boyfriend and the live-in boyfriend had written a screenplay. I mean, the story's nuts. And, and you know, I am sympathetic to him for that. But everyone seemed to have an opinion about this, including Barbara Walters, who goes on The View the next day and defends Dave, saying um, he's a very attractive man. Where else is he going to meet women except at work? Or with his... Well, okay, I won't say anything. Right. <laughs> so... Now, it's really problematic when it's the boss. You know, office romances happen, but when it's the person who has the power to hire and fire you, it's not okay. And in, in fact, it was against Worldwide Pants uh, harassment policy, too. So Worldwide Pants being his production company. Right. So everyone has an opinion. And at the same time, I learned through Nancy Franklin at The New Yorker that there are were zero women on the writing staff. And that actually did shock me because, you know, I figured, you know, after me and, and some others, there at least would always be one woman on staff, like you would want to cover your ass that way. And so when it went back to zero, um, I was shocked. And I explain it in my book as that there's, it's not in Hollywood. It's not actually a glass ceiling you break through. It's the ceiling is made of that Terminator metal that you crack, but then it reforms and <laughs> and reconstitutes and 
it's even stronger. So I feel compelled to write an article about my experience at the show and the sexual favoritism that I witnessed. And then I make this pivot to talk about um, gender discrimination in these writer, writer's rooms. So I speak out about this in 2009. In 2010, Sheryl Sandberg does this amazing TED Talk called Why We Have So Few Women Leaders. And um, we have a mutual friend who I had reconnected with on Facebook who in 2011 writes me, have you seen Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk? And I write back, seen it, I memorized it. So he connected us. She's working on some speeches. She wants some help smoothing them out. And we start this collaboration, uh, which is one of the just best work experiences. No, it is the best work experience of my life. The writing Lean In. Working with Cheryl on speeches, working on Lean In. And, you know, it's a, it's a mission. Why was it the best? Because it was a mission. Like, and what did you learn from her while working with her? Well, she is one of the world great communicators, and she's a wonderful leader. She's, uh, she's gen- she's the hardest working person I know. She's the most generous boss I know, and and that's not just compensation. I mean, with praise, with credit, uh, she um, she invites dissent, and I I've rarely worked with leaders who do that. Where she'll say, "What am I missing?" You know, what What am I getting wrong? And it's it's so empowering, um, which is a word I hate, but I'm using it in this case um, because it, it fits. What do you think, like how would you describe, since you're, you and her are the experts, how would you describe the words lean in? Like what does it mean? So someone recently said to me, um, you know, what did, we, what did we say before we said lean in? We didn't say anything because we didn't have, we being women, didn't have permission to be ambitious. We were embarrassed to be ambitious. So to me, lean in really means um, going after what you want, which women just weren't comfortable saying they were doing before Cheryl invented lean in. So, so, so for instance, I mean, I feel like you leaned in all through your career do you feel there were instances where you didn't? Oh, there were. But one of the reasons I did want to write a, the book is because it is such a case study for Lean In, including, so when Cheryl gives this TED Talk, she makes three points. She says, um, sit at the table, which I love because it's both metaphorical and figurative. Um, you know, Literally, I did not sit at the table when I was working at Newhart. I would sit on the periphery in this chair, even when they were reading a script I wrote. Mm. And all the other writers were at the table, but I didn't feel comfortable enough. Really, you couldn't say to join them. That's my script. I should be sitting here. Not until someone gave me permission mm. and waved me over. Mm. The second point she makes is don't leave before you you leave, which means so many women are thinking ahead to the day they might have children that they back off from their careers early on because they, they, they think they will have to. And the third point she makes is make your partner a real partner. 
And this is something that um, I totally nailed. And I married a wonderful man uh, who's, an, who's sitting here right who's now. Who's sitting here, Colin <laughs> Summers. And I would say this even if he weren't sitting here right now. And he um, was an architect and rode motorcycles. And yet the sexiest thing he ever said to me was, if, if we have a baby, I'd be happy to be the primary parent. And I just thought that was amazing because I love my career. I didn't want to give it up. But at the same time, I wanted a kid. And the solution was he stayed home. So, so let me ask you like, uh, so, so, and you say in the book actually that lean in for men could be leaning more into your role in the family as a nurturer in the family and so yes. on. And kind of the counter argument to that has been, uh, some role reversal will will you know goes against hundreds of thousands or millions of years of of kind of evolutionary psychology. Do you believe that at all? Or like you just said, the sexiest thing he said was right. this role reversal thing. So obviously, it didn't turn off your attraction to him. Him taking on a more feminine role. Right. Um, I don't believe it at all. I think that's a construct uh, a cultural construction. Hmm. I mean, and I can tell you from our experience uh, that. He is the more nurturing of the two of us, and our kids are magnificent. And there's, but but it we both had to be comfortable with that uh, cultural shift. So he had to be comfortable staying home, and I also had to be comfortable, um, you know, being the breadwinner. Right, because you would face criticism. Right, of not being home with the. Kids. Sure, and to some extent, and by, I never talked about my kids at work because I was so worried hmm. I'd be judged. Right. Um, so let me ask you this: is sort of an odd question, but you wrote jokes for Barack Obama. He obviously was a was a hit with with you know <laughs> with your with your writing. If you had to write a joke for Donald Trump, a would you let's say you you saying no was not an option? Like you let's say for whatever reason you wanted to do it, what would you write? What would you how would you think about it? Well, I I think he does have a sense of humor. I think it's very mean. So it would probably, I'd start with thinking, you know, about who he could call ugly or, you know, that because that's where his comedy lies. <laughs> Although I did write a joke recently about, um, I don't know if he could tell it, but it was um, Mike Pence won't be alone with a woman unless his spouse is there and Melania won't be alone with her spouse unless a photographer's there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he could tell that. That's a little, that's a, so that's a vulnerability that he doesn't necessarily show. Uh, yes. I don't know if he ever shows vulnerability. Maybe he does. I don't know. He, he did a joke recently at the, the alfalfa club where he's like, you know, people tell me that to be good at comedy, you have to be self-deprecating. Well, I'm the best at being self-deprecating. All right. And it's like, okay. But I feel like that's been done, that joke. Yeah, I do too. So, But uh, that was the best of his jokes. And and what's what's next for you now? You've written this book. You're, are you working on a thousand new TV show ideas or anything? Always. I, I'd actually like to direct again. I have a chapter about directing. I've directed two movies. Um, and that's kind of... That's the big challenge. I'm kind of a challenge junkie. So, and you like you like the. What do you think? I guess last question to close this off. 
first off, I do want to say just the funny parts uh, and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. This book was so great. I've lent it out to several friends who are you know, interested in the television industry and I'll probably keep lending it out. Like I just thought it was an excellent book and I love reading these types of books. And um, where do you think television is heading now? Like I feel... I feel there's there's something happening, which is you have Netflix and Amazon throwing $20 billion at creating original programming. A lot of that money is going to be wasted. And so there's yeah. been eventually going to be some backlash to that. And meanwhile, YouTube, like a, a, there are thousands and thousands of YouTube channels where every single video those channels do get, get more views or, or, or watches than the average cable TV show. So where do you think, what do you think happens in TV in general? I think it becomes personality driven and it's um, the means of production are, have, have no barrier to entry anymore. You know, people shoot movies on their phones and, you know, I think that's exciting. I think it means the gatekeepers don't have as much power and the creators get more. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I hope you're right. And uh, the question is whether we'll be able to find that that material, right? Because even as it is, I feel like I can't consume, you know, all the good stuff that that I want to. But that's okay because enough people are finding things that they enjoy that that's why these YouTube channels are getting so many more views than, let's say, the average TV show. Like the average Netflix TV show, nobody's ever, nobody will ever hear of. Like right. I, don't, I don't even know if the average Netflix show gets any views. We only know about the three that we we love and that everyone loves. Um, and same thing for Amazon and Hulu has original shows, and I think iTunes has original shows. So uh, they all get buried in the muck, whereas yeah. YouTube, the the best stuff, kind of finds its niche audience somehow. So it seems like there's, and like you say, it seems like the middlemen are not involved in the YouTube ones. Whereas with TV, you have you know, managers, agents, right. the first production studio, the second production studio, the final outlet, and, and so on. Exactly. And each one can say no to you. Well, and we also have access to all the old stuff now, you know, and so that's, there's just a lot of content. <laughs> does, that, does that make you scared at all? No, no. But I still, I actually think, you know, there, there's new technologies to come, and it's the technology that drives the content. I mean, the the example I always use is Gutenberg got top billing over the Bible. <laughs> got taught. Oh, got top. Top billing over the Bible. It's Gutenberg's Bible, right? And so we'll see what the next, whether it's VR or... I remember years ago going to a meeting at Warner Brothers about HDTV because everyone was going to be watching on these huge screens. And I, we were told, like, you, your makeup artists need to rethink how they're doing makeup on the actors because we can see every pore. And instead, everyone wa is watching on their phones. Right, which is lower quality. Lower quality, tiny. Um, so who knows where it's going? Uh, I want to I just close this reading one, one section um, you had it's from the beginning of your career, and you got three pieces of advice. And you you mentioned this friend of yours who gave you advice, but you mentioned the first line: one, never be afraid to write on spec. 
which I think applies to every industry. Don't be afraid to kind of deliver free before, so, you know, in order to get people to notice you. Right. Um, and also it gives good practice. It gets you familiar with things. Number two, don't ask friends for work, which is a, a little interesting. Like, I, I, what was the basis of that advice? <laughs> I took it very personally. I think they were just saying, don't ask us for work. <laughs> but it's probably good advice. No, it is. No, <clears throat> I and do there's, remember there's what he said. There's research that backs that, actually. Really? No, what, what they said, look, if you're friends, then your friends will know you're looking for work, and if they want to hire you, they will. You know what the research says is that uh, your friends of friends are the best, are the places where you're most likely to find work. Oh. So on LinkedIn, it's not your first level connections, it's your second level connections that usually provide you with opportunities. And so your third piece of advice was take any job that comes your way, you never know where it might lead. And I guess that's true if you have like a certain passion, like you knew you wanted to break into the entertainment industry, so just take anything. Sure. So No, I, or even like, you know, late in my career, I was offered a job on NCIS. And I, I just thought, well, that's fun. I never thought I'd be working on this kind of a procedural show. And I, I loved it. What was a, a joke on the, uh, the bloodiest crime scene possible? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, they, they didn't do joke jokes. But I did write uh, co-write an episode where we had a DARPA car and and the car was murdering people. So I did get to do a killer car. <laughs> All right, a killer car. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Nell Scoville, uh, just the funny parts. I can't recommend this book highly enough. I'm really glad you wrote it. Oh, and thank you. as long as you're at it, by Lean In as well. <laughs> Everyone yes. should be reading that book anyway. <laughs> and thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, this was fun. Thank you. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.